Hi everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 173. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Sophia Henderson, Dusty Mobley, and David Gwaltney for liking the Weekend Out Facebook page. I think I may have already mentioned David, I'm not sure, but hey, nothing wrong with thanking someone twice. I'd also like to quickly make a clarification of sorts. Last week, I addressed some criticisms that were leveled against me by a certain YouTuber regarding the episode I did on FGM and circumcision. Well, it seems that she was under the impression that I had called her, and if you're one of my listeners who doesn't like swearing, you may want to skip forward 30 seconds or so. But she got the impression that I had called her a bitch. So I went to check on the video to see how it was doing, and there were literally about three or four different comments where she references me calling her a bitch, and she says how calling a woman that speaks poorly of my character, and I agree it would if I had actually said it. But I remember my jaw dropped because not only did I not call her that, but I don't think I've ever called anyone that. I'm not saying I'm a saint. I swear like a truck driver around my friends. I just don't usually go around insulting people or calling them names, especially not on the show. It's partly a courtesy thing, and it's also because I don't want to be seen as just another shrill voice. I want my arguments to be taken seriously. But anyway, this isn't me trying to give the YouTuber in question a hard time or embarrass her. I just want to clarify the situation because in fairness to her, it actually does kind of sound like I said that. It's about 21 minutes, 42 seconds in, and I say... And and it's like audio pareidolia here. I'm I'm priming you like on one of those ghost hunter shows before they play an EVP. But this is actually what I said. I say, in quotes, quoting myself, in that same bit, she also says, as in during this same portion of her commentary. But here's the audio. It's kind of amazing. Uh, it, it might sound like I said it, but... I actually didn't say it. Oh yeah, that same bitch, she also says that. Oh yeah, that same bitch, she also says that. Oh yeah, that same bitch, she also says that. Okay, so even if it really sounds like I'm saying it, that is not what I was actually trying to say. My advice for aspiring podcasters and uh, just human beings in general, watch when you put the words bit and she in close proximity. Once again, uh, my apologies to uh, the person in question, Seagull B. Even though it's not what I intended, uh, I just feel bad that you took it that way. Um, so, peace, Seagull B. Peace. All right, but finally, uh, anyway, moving on to the focus of today's show. So, I seem to have developed quite the uh, affinity for controversial topics, and today's might be one of the most controversial I've ever done or tackled. I want to talk about the recent attacks or sexual assaults that took place on New Year's Eve in Cologne, Germany, and other similar troubling incidents that seem to be popping up all over Europe including the uh, Rotherham scandal in England and the apparent increase in rapes and sexual assaults in Sweden. 
And of course, the elephant in the room that some are trying desperately to ignore is the fact that these cases have a common thread, and that being the fact that the perpetrators are Muslim immigrants, or in some cases, second or third generation men of Muslim descent or a Muslim immigrant ancestry. And for a while, I have to admit, I was hesitant to talk about some of these stories because they sounded so incredibly outrageous on face value that I assumed there may be some possibility they were propaganda or at least greatly exaggerated, such as the Rotherham case in which 1,400 underage girls were raped and or tortured and abused by Muslim immigrants in the UK. But unfortunately, these cases are all too real. Due to the sensitivity of the subject matter and the seriousness of the allegations, I decided to eschew my beloved Wikipedia and lean on more quote-unquote reputable media sources such as the BBC. Now, I personally like Wikipedia, and I think... It has this effective method of, of self-policing, and I think it's a very reliable source usually, but I know that if people don't like your opinion and you say you're quoting Wikipedia, they'll usually try to use that as a straw man and say, oh, you're getting your information from Wikipedia, why should we trust you? And the funny thing is, I find in my personal experience, it's usually more of like the fringe people that look down their nose at Wikipedia. Like, I remember I did an episode on the Jefferson Bible, and there was a couple of times where I quoted Wikipedia in there, and someone kind of scoffed sarcastically or tried to dismiss my claims, seemingly because they didn't like the idea of the Jefferson Bible in general. So they were probably hoping that it was some made-up thing. But anyway, if you're not familiar, the Jefferson Bible is a version of the Bible, as the name suggests, the version of the Bible that Thomas Jefferson had made. And he was a deist and uh, a rationalist. So he basically literally, basically took a, a razor, literally, and cut away all the miraculous bits from the uh, Bible, and all you were really left with was kind of the, the wise sayings of Jesus, etc. And I could see why some Christians might feel a little threatened by or, or disturbed by that. Uh, but anyway, in an attempt to deprive my critics of ammunition and straw men, uh, I, I decided I would try to use what most people consider more quote-unquote reputable sources. And I'd like to thank my friend Russ in the United Kingdom for sending me a number of news articles and links, which helped me greatly. I would say his last name, but I don't want the local Muslim community showing up on his doorstep. Kidding, people. Just kidding. And before I start really digging in here, I want to say up front, for me, this doesn't appear to be a racial issue. And I can just imagine all the storm fronters shoving their mice away in disgust. <laughs> because I'm already saying that I don't think it's about race. Although there may be a bit of a racial element in some cases, such as the quote-unquote grooming gangs that have been described uh, by some as viewing their white female victims as lesser. And I'll go into that in more detail when the time comes. 
But for me, this is a cultural issue and possibly to an extent a religious issue as well, since the line between culture and religion can at times become rather blurry. If someone comes from a region where, say, fundamentalist Islamic ideas about purity, sex, and regressive attitudes towards women are deeply ingrained in the culture, then it becomes rather difficult to try to tease out how much of the problem is due to religion and how much is to do with culture. And uh, now that I think about it, I suppose you could argue that religion is an aspect of culture. Uh, but my goal here isn't to demonize Muslims. It's to try to shine a light on a very serious problem that needs to be addressed and remedied and not simply swept under the carpet for fear of appearing politically incorrect or bigoted. So I think what I'll do now is start with the recent New Year's Eve incident in Cologne, Germany. I'll give a brief summary and then read from a couple of sources. So to put it briefly, in my own words, there was a rash of attacks, robberies, and sexual assaults targeting women in parts of Germany as well as other parts of Europe this past New Year's Eve. And, and I think Cologne is getting the most attention because of the sheer number of attackers and victims. In Cologne, there were about 80 to 100 reported sexual assaults and at least one reported rape. The perpetrators numbered around 1,000 and were said to be apparently of North African or Middle Eastern descent. Uh, they surrounded women through fireworks to cause distractions and confusion, including throwing fireworks down women's tops. At least one woman was seriously injured by a firework and will probably be scarred for the rest of her life. In some cases, they groped women seemingly in an attempt to distract them so they could more easily steal their belongings. In other cases, apparently the attacks were strictly sexual in nature. Uh, women described being grabbed everywhere by multiple assailants. If they tried to resist, they were held or restrained. Women were left with heavy bruising all over their bodies, including the breast and buttocks. At least one woman described being penetrated in, and I'm paraphrasing, every orifice. In some cases, the male partners of some of the women were chased off or beaten. Uh, at least one suffered severe lacerations to the face. At least one girl suffered a broken nose and cuts to the face. Supposedly, a volunteer policewoman was among the assaulted. One police officer said that in 30 years on the job, he had never seen anything like it. I'm not sure if it was the same officer, but someone recounted a story about being approached by young women who were crying, saying that they had been stripped of their underwear during the assaults. It appears in retrospect that the assaults were organized. A slip of paper with translations of Arab to German phrases was discovered, or Arabic to German phrases, perhaps. Uh, some of the phrases included busty, I want to kiss you, I want to kill you, and I want to... F-word. Um, I've been swearing so much on the podcast lately, I'm trying to censor myself a bit. But I want to F, you know, use your imagination. And I'm trying to imagine, I mean, I don't mean to make light of this, but talk about bad pickup lines. What would going up to a girl and saying, you know, busty, you know, um, accomplish? Never mind. I want to kill you. Um, 
To add insult to injury, the police and government tried to deny the reality of the situation at first, claiming that everything was fine, possibly even ordering the press to handle the topic delicately and not to draw links between refugees or immigrants and crime. The truth finally started coming out after a few days and the police began ad admitting what had happened. German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who's usually soft on immigration to say the least, addressed the situation, and I'm paraphrasing very loosely, but she supposedly recognized that Germany may have to reevaluate its open-door policy and that those responsible for such crimes may face deportation. Some have chided Cologne's female mayor for what they see as victim-blaming. In the aftermath of the incident, she issued a kind of code of conduct, instructing women always to keep an arm's length away from strange men in public, and if you're assaulted, you should ask a bystander for help. And this is obviously very weak advice. How are you supposed to keep an arm's distance when a group of aggressive men are swarming you? And you don't think that any of those 80 to 100 women cried for help? I imagine some were swarmed so heavily and they were so disoriented that they probably weren't even aware if there were any bystanders around them to help. But I made a liar out of myself. That wasn't brief at all. But that was my take, and just so you don't think this was all some fever dream on my part, I'll, I'll read a bit from a couple of BBC articles. So here's one dated January 9th, 2016. This is from the BBC, as I said. Cologne attacks Merkel proposes tougher migrant laws. German Chancellor Angela Merkel has proposed changes to make it easier to deport asylum seekers who commit crimes after the New Year's Eve sex attacks on women in Cologne. The attacks, which victims say were carried out by men of North African and Arab appearance, have called into question her open-door migrant policy. The police's handling of the events has also been sharply criticized. Later, there were clashes at an anti-immigrant protest in Cologne. Police used water cannon and pepper spray to disperse protesters from the right-wing anti-immigrant Pegida. I think it is movement as violence flared after a rally which heard condemnation of Mrs. Merkel's policies. I think I've heard that Pegida before. I don't know if it's a uh, acronym or what. And the funny thing is, this is Germany, but Pegida sounds vaguely Spanish to me. Um, uh, why am I making jokes about such a serious thing? Levity, people. We need a little bit of it to keep us sane. Okay, but I just looked it up. PEGIDA stands for, in English, Patriotic Europeans Against the Islamization of the Occident. But in German, Patriotisch Europeer, Europeer, <laughs> I'm butchering this, Gegen die Islamiserung des Abendlands. My apologies if I have any German listeners. I know that was probably awful. I did recognize D and Gagan, though. I'm a Rammstein fan, and uh, they have that song, Man, Gagan, Man. <laughs> man against man, I think. And here's another one from the BBC. This one is from January 7th. Cologne sex attacks. Women describe terrible assaults. More than 100 women and girls have come forward with reports of sexual assault and robbery by gangs of men in the German city of Cologne on New Year's Eve. 
Victims have described chaos outside the city's main station as the men carried out dozens of attacks with little apparent response from the authorities. Correspondents say the identification of the attackers as North African or Arab in appearance has caused alarm in Germany because of the influx of more than a million migrants and refugees in the past year. Some of the women caught in the violence had begun speaking of their ordeal. So here's one young woman says... Um, 20 or 30 men surrounded us and we couldn't even see anymore. Michelle told the BBC News how she and her friends became surrounded by between 20 and 30 men who were speaking a foreign language. They grabbed our arms, pushed our clothes away and tried to get between our legs or I don't know where. They got everything we had in our pockets. She said German police needed to provide more protection for women and girls. We are really shocked that something like this could happen, especially at an event like New Year's Eve. Another one, I thought they could kill us and nobody would notice. All of a sudden, these men around us began groping us, she said. They touched our behinds and grabbed between our legs. They touched us everywhere. So my girlfriend wanted to get out of the crowd. When I turned around, one guy grabbed my bag and ripped it off my body. I thought to myself, if we stay here in this crowd, they could kill us. They could rape us and nobody would notice. I thought we simply had to accept it. There was no one around us who helped or was in a position to help. All I wanted was to get out. I was scared that I wouldn't leave this crowd alive. I was scared that if someone showed up with a knife, I could be raped in the middle of the street. Another one says they felt they could do anything. They felt like they were in power and they could do anything with women who are out in the street partying. They touched us everywhere. It was truly terrible. Another one named Jenny. The scars will stay, it says. I heard a sizzling sound in my hood. I somehow tried to get it out of my hood, she said. Then it fell into my jacket and burned everything. The scars will stay. I was lucky that it didn't explode. My mobile phone was gone afterwards. I think they did it on purpose so they could steal my phone. Another one woman says I was touched between my legs. We were fondled. I was touched between my legs. My friends also were fondled, she said. There were quite a big group of people, maybe 30 or 40. You didn't know who to trust. You tried the whole time to push everyone else away from you. And there's a British woman who was visiting Cologne. They were trying to hug us, kiss us, make us walk with them. We, we refused. One man stole my friend's bag. Another tried to get us into his private taxi. Private taxi in quotes. I will never go back to Cologne. And I've told my friends and family never to go there until the situation is under control. And a, a couple of women mentioned having their belongings or their, or their phones stolen. And some, I just read today, some of the stolen phones were actually traced back to the residences of um, refugees or asylum seekers. Let's see, and if for some reason you don't trust the BBC, here's a CNN. Um, this is dated January 8th. Cologne New Year's attackers could face deportation, German official says. I'm looking at some of the story highlights. Men behind mob sex attacks in Cologne, Germany could face deportation, Justice Minister says. More than 121 criminal complaints have been filed relating to the assaults on New Year's Eve. And that's fine. This says 121. That's more than I uh, cited earlier. And th there are some differences in uh, the numbers, probably because, you know, it was a developing story or whatever. Um, victims said the assailants were gangs of men who appeared to be Arab or North African. So Berlin, CNN, the perpetrators of mob sex attacks and muggings in the city of Cologne on New Year's Eve could face deportation if, 
if they are migrants, Germany's justice minister said Thursday. Germany has been shocked by the apparently coordinated crime wave in the center of the city in western Germany on New Year's Eve, in which scores of women reported being sexually assaulted or robbed by gangs of men of Arab or North African appearance. Cologne police spokeswoman Stephanie Becker told CNN on Thursday that more than 121 criminal complaints have been filed relating to the mass assaults, including two accounts of rape, while 16 suspects have been identified but not charged. And I was going to get to other similar attacks, but uh, I'll read a little bit about this. Because lower down on the page, it says similar attacks. Similar attacks were reported in other German cities on New Year's Eve, with more than 50 similar incidents reported in the northern city of Hamburg. The attacks have sparked outrage in Germany, prompting angry protests and fueling public debate about the wisdom of Germany's welcoming stance to migrants. German Justice Minister Heiko Maas said Thursday that... um, I don't know if I butchered that or not. People found guilty could be deported if they were seeking asylum. The law allows for people to be deported during asylum proceedings if they're sentenced to a year or more in prison, and that's possible with sexual offenses, he said. Merkel says situation is intolerable. said her government would look to send a clear sign for those not willing to respect German law. Of course, after what happened, there are several very serious questions which go beyond Cologne. Are there connections or collective patterns? Are there elements of condemnation of women, she said. We must vehemently work against that. I don't think these are single cases. People have a right, and we as a state institution have the obligation to give the right answers to this. Merkel has faced tough criticism after the attacks, a result of her decision to have Germany take in the bulk of migrant influx that has created a crisis on Europe's borders. Many Germans have expressed opposition to the sudden arrival of so many, predominantly Muslim migrants, questioning their ability to adapt to a European way of life. And now I have so many articles, so much information and video clips to sort through. I'm trying to stay organized as I go. But as I was sifting through, I just found this little clip I saved from the David Pakman show where he's talking about Majid Nawaz's take on this. And if you're not familiar, Majid Nawaz is a former Muslim extremist. Uh, He grew up in the UK. He supposedly faced uh, racism as a a boy, as a young man, and... uh, and kind of the anger or whatever sense of marginalization that he experienced from all that kind of led him into extremism. Then, uh, I believe, while he was doing time, it might have been an Egyptian jail, he had this moment of clarity where he decided to leave extremism. And now he's still a Muslim, but he fights against extremism and you know, Islamic fundamentalism, terrorism, jihadism, um, without being intellectually dishonest. You know, a, a lot of people are afraid that if you criticize Islam, you're going to be painted as a racist. So they're, so they're afraid to criticize Islam. They're uh, afraid to get their hands dirty and, and approach topics like, um, 
well, maybe the topic I'm I'm covering right now, uh, the topic of jihadism, the topic of the treatment of women in uh, certain parts of the Muslim world, quote unquote Muslim world, just in case Reza Aslan's listening to uh, keep him happy. But I think being overly politically correct is a danger. And, and I think it in itself is a kind of extreme type of view. Just as uh, I think being too far on the right, where, where you do kind of border on racism, where, you know, every Muslim is a subhuman animal. Uh, there's no good Muslims or whatever, you know. Uh, people who want to look at these instances, of, you know, of uh, Muslim men attacking white women and saying this is a... And of course, it should go without saying Islam isn't a race, but... You know, this is a chance to say brown men are animals who attack women or something or say it's a racial thing. You know, you have people who go too far on the right in, in that sense. And uh, as tempting as it might be to give in to that kind of xenophobia at times, that extremism, because it gives you a quick answer. It gives you a quick outlet for the anger you're feeling in the moment. But it's not necessarily intellectually honest or clear headed. But then on the left, you have people who will who will make excuses till the cows come home and, and avoid actually saying we have a clash of cultures here or that, hey, maybe there is something wrong with certain aspects of other people's cultures or how they treat women in that culture or, or how, you know, there might be something about the mixture of religion and culture or whatever it is in certain cases that facilitates this kind of backwards mindset where people think it's all right to attack women or treat women like second-class citizens or cattle or whatever. And it's funny, I really don't like the whole minefield that is the ongoing war between quote-unquote SJWs and MRAs or, uh, you know... Um, or the super politically correct uh, liberals versus the the more, you know, anti-Muslim liberals or whatever. But, I mean, here we are. And it is funny. Like, I've, I've heard... I'm not going to spend much time on this because, because I don't want to come off as some kind of anti-feminist guy or whatever. Although I certainly take issue with a lot of what I see as the overly politically correct ideas that we find uh, kicking around in in that camp, the kind of uh, Tumblr feminist slash uh, SJW, so to speak, camp to use, you know, YouTube lingo or whatever. But yeah, I've heard people like Sargon and other people make the point that you have these people that are supposed to be feminists who are really fighting for equality for women and women's rights and I'm not saying all of them, certainly not. And there's different strains and types of feminism. I think you have the more grounded kind of feminism, then you have the more kind of over-the-top, ultra-PC uh, feminism that maybe you find on Tumblr or YouTube sometimes or whatever. And the term rape culture gets thrown around a lot. And I'm not one of those people that dismisses the idea that there's a rape problem on college campuses or whatever. I don't know much about it. I really don't. But if you have the two sexes mixing and mingling, you throw alcohol and the rest in the mix, 
and uh it's all these people it's probably their first time really away from home um they're partying all the time and stuff i'm sure there are cases where rape is occurring where maybe a woman is passed out or so intoxicated she can barely function and you know she can't even can barely talk never mind consent or just cases you know classic cases of rape where someone forces themselves as graphic as it is inside another person and so i know there's troubling issues like there was the duke lacrosse um story there was the rolling stone story so there are these cases that have been proven to be false these high profile cases but i'm still sure i mean but you know unfortunately uh, sexual assault is one of those kind of perennial crimes that happens no matter where in the world we're talking about you know like um, murder theft there are these crimes that have been around since the dawn of time or at least that are as old as mankind itself so i'm sure there probably are actual cases of rape on college campuses so i'm not uh dismissing that and like i said in a youtube comment and i actually didn't realize i was kind of being trolled um it might have been a video discussing the new year's eve attacks perhaps and someone just trolling pretending to be like an ultra radical feminist or whatever said something like Muslims don't oppress women the way we do here in the West. And so I just went off on this little screed where I was talking about, uh, you know, arranged marriages, forced modesty in the form of burqas and stuff, honor killing, stoning women to death, uh, not being allowed to drive in in certain cases, uh, not being able to leave the home unless escorted by a male relative uh, female genital mutilation. And I, so I, I just totally bought it hook, line, and sinker, and I ended up going off on this whole tangent. And I ended it by saying, you know, a, a person can be outraged by both rape on college campuses, however much of it there is, you know, and uh, sexual assaults by Muslim immigrants in Cologne, Germany. It's not an either-or thing. But the reason why I brought up the college campus thing is that... Uh, because as some people like Sargon have complained, you know, you have these kind of ultra PC, quote unquote, feminists who are all about microaggressions and uh, white male privilege and uh, rape culture. And then when you have something like this, actual rape culture, where you have these kind of regressive backwards ideas uh, about how to treat women from one one culture coming into a more modernized Western culture. And all of a sudden you have this case where men really are treating women, not rhetorically, not hyperbolically. Men really are treating women as sex objects in the truest sense and treating women like cattle, chasing them, cornering them, surrounding them, groping them, ripping their clothes off. And you don't really hear much from those same people, you know? So, and don't get me wrong, I'm sure there's a lot of what I would call serious grown-up feminists who really are outraged by this stuff. People that do really fight to try to make life better 
for women who really do live in danger, who really do live in oppression, people who can't choose what they want to wear, who they marry, people who are subjected to things like FGM, people who cry out against things like when, when Boko Haram kidnaps hundreds of girls and, and sells them into sex slavery. I think there really are a lot of grown-up feminists who probably speak out about that stuff. You know, and there's people like Ayan Hirsi Ali, a person who grew up in an oppressive fundamentalist Islamic culture and who herself was subjected to FGM and who's now an atheist and who now speaks out against that type of barbarity. There are a lot of really great women out there, a lot of really great feminists out there like that. But it is kind of interesting, though. These same people who just seem to care more about political correctness and trying to push Orwellian newspeak on everyone, you don't hear from them as much when something, I mean, horrific like this happens. And I might as well just be myself and say what I feel. Because I'm going to take crap from people no matter what you know i'm gonna catch flack probably for not being a racist i'm gonna catch flack for not being politically correct enough i mean no matter what you do online you're gonna end up taking flack and that's not me trying to you know break out the world's tiniest violin it's actually the opposite it's me just kind kind of accepting how things are and, and saying, hey, I'm going to slog on anyway. I'm going to do what I want. Um, you could probably do like a knitting show on YouTube and someone will complain that's not the way my grandmother used to knit. You're doing it wrong. No matter what you do or no matter what stance you take, people are going to criticize you. So you might as well be true to yourself and, and speak the truth as you see it. And then you'll at least have the satisfaction of knowing that you have some integrity. And uh, at least you're trying to devote yourself to the truth as best you can. Uh, but anyway, enough of that. The reason why I went off on this tangent is because I started talking about Majid Nawaz. So as I was saying, Majid Nawaz is a former extremist. He's now what you could call a reformer, I guess. And this reminds me, I just recently did an interview or I, you know, co-hosted an episode of Skeptical Politics, a podcast I sometimes do with uh, my friend and fellow podcaster, Chris Weber, C-Web, uh, of uh, C-Web Sunday School and Paranormal Skeptic Academy uh, fame. And I was kind of complaining to him how, <laughs> you know, I sometimes feel that pull when I'm doing a podcast. I feel that, you know, the politically correct crowd wants me to go in one direction the more kind of right-leaning crowd wants me to go in the other direction. And uh, it can be exhausting. It can be stressful. And uh, I just got, have to go back to square one and remember when I started this podcast, my goal was to just talk about things that I'm passionate about, wrestle with the big questions, uh, take a look at news stories and, and, and religious subjects or topics from a skeptical or, you know, uh, kind of atheistic point of view. And of course, it should go without saying the goal was to do so, to comment on these things as myself, offering you my opinion, my two cents, not somebody else's. 
So every once in a while, it's good to just take a deep breath and remind yourself, don't worry so much about how you're going to be judged or what other people think. Be true to yourself. As corny as that might sound. But C-Web and I always get along great. Um, but probably for the first time ever, there was a little bit of tension or friction between us. C-Web is not a big Sam Harris fan, whereas I am a Sam Harris fan. But surprisingly enough, what really interests me about Sam Harris isn't really his take on Islam. But what I like about him is how he's a fellow atheist or non-believer who has an interest in quote-unquote spiritual topics, meditation, uh, altering consciousness, uh, things like that, you know, Eastern religion and mysticism. And I, I got into a little bit of an argument or a debate with C-Web, uh, and, and calling it an argument, I mean, that's relative. Uh, C-Web and I get along so well, and I'm such a laid-back guy that I, uh, it might have felt like an argument a little to me, but I, I doubt it would necessarily seem like one to uh, an outsider. But yeah, he doesn't like Sam Harris's take on profiling, um, he thinks Sam Harris kind of backtracked on that at some point. And, you know, in the stuff about a nuclear first strike, he takes issue with some of that stuff with Sam Harris. But C-Web asked me, why can't Islam be reformed? Like, he thought it could be reformed. Now, I don't know if he expected me to agree, but I said, you know, I definitely think it can be reformed. And I even went a step further. I said, you know, there's many people who practice a type of Islam that doesn't need to be reformed because it's already a kind of type of Islam that allows them to function in a Western society without issue. And I kind of said, you know, you could have two different Muslims, you know, you, you could have a guy who's, I don't know, a dentist with four kids or whatever lives in, you know, the American suburbs. Maybe he's, I don't know, he's second or third generation or whatever. And, and uh, he thinks Islam's a religion of peace. Uh, he thinks when it talks about striking the head off the infidel or whatever, you know, that that refers to the, the Battle of Badr. You know, that just refers to this one point when Mecca was under siege or whatever, you know, and he tries to contextualize it, find ways why that's all right. And that's not a prescription for Muslims in general, that, you know, wherever you, wherever you are, you should strike off the head of the infidel. Uh, that was just about that one point of time and one specific battle. And, uh, but I think there are multiple occasions where the Quran talks about smiting infidels or whatever. It might not, it might not solely be limited to the battle of Badr. Um, but then you might have, let's say a member of ISIS who thinks that, when the Quran says to strike off the head of the infidel, it means really strike off the head of the infidel, really wherever you find them. And uh, that it's a good Muslim's job to try to push Islam to the ends of the earth and conquer along the way. You know what I mean? So the Muslim that has an airy fairy approach to Islam and can be the beloved neighborhood dentist in the American suburbs. He doesn't need, his Islam doesn't need to be reformed. The ISIS guys, something's got to be done with those guys. They either got to be wiped out or reformed if that's possible. But, but I said, yeah, I think, you know, 
Islam, of course, Islam can be reformed, you know, um, would be better if people just put childish things aside and stopped believing in stuff that isn't true and uh, literally believe in man-made belief systems. Yeah, that would be awesome. But if people are going to insist on hanging on to their religious baggage, I guess the best we can hope for is that we can at least water those belief systems down or reform them to the point where hopefully they're not going to hurt anyone or hurt people as often. Um, but Majid Nawaz did a, uh, wrote a book along with Sam Harris. They're kind of bosom buddies now <laughs> to some extent. And I'm, I'm sure that that probably causes smoke to come out of a lot of people's ears, you know, sp- people who dislike Sam Harris or um, who just try to write him off as a bigot or a racist or something. Here is Sam Harris working side by side with a Muslim who used to be an extremist and who is still a Muslim, but is, you know, is just trying to promote a kind of healthier, more peaceful interpretation of the faith and uh, who is trying to reform Islam. And Sam Harris himself says that uh, I'm trying to think, I'm paraphrasing here. If he didn't say Islam can be reformed, he said he hopes it can be reformed. Um, because if it can't be, you know, we're in a lot of trouble here. Um, but anyway, I think it's a good thing that uh, Majid Nawaz and Sam Harris can come together. You know, these people with, with two different worldviews can uh, put aside their differences or actually still appreciate each other despite their differences uh, enough to work together collectively and even, you know, author a book. Uh, but anyway, here's an interesting clip regarding Majid Nawaz from David, from the David Pakman show. And geez, it only took me about 20 minutes to, to get to this point. Do we ignore their background or do we talk about their background? Do we ignore or not uh, t- or, or not ignore that their refugees are seeking asylum. How do we critique this? Majid Nawaz wrote an article in the Daily Beast about this, and I think he is absolutely spot on. Let's take a look at what he had to say, Lewis. He said, yes, it is racist to suspect that all brown men who look like me are rapists. It is bigoted to presume that all Muslim men who share my faith advocate religiously justified rape. It is xenophobic to assume that all male refugees are sexual predators awaiting their chance to rape. But let me be absolutely clear. What will feed this racism, bigotry and xenophobia even more is deliberately failing to report the facts as they stand. Doing so only encourages the populist rights rallying cry against, quote, the establishment. If liberals do not address such issues swiftly with complete candor and courage, the far right and anti-Muslim populist groups will get there first. They have been doing so for a while now. And I actually think that's a great sentiment. I want to commend David Pakman and Majid Nawaz for the kind of strong but measured stance they're taking. And it's true, you know, burying your head in the sand doesn't help anyone. And if you're a lefty, a far lefty, trying to sweep under the carpet the fact that there are cultural differences and these people doing this are coming from a certain culture or religion or whatever, all you're doing is giving the far right 
ammunition. In that sense, it's dangerous in a couple of ways to, to be overly politically correct and stick your head in the sand. On the one hand, you're empowering the far right by not at least being willing to admit the cultural differences, um, etc. And also, what you think is going to happen if you don't address the problem. Usually when you don't address a problem, the problem only gets worse. And a lot of the mainstream media, at first, were leaving out, you know, the ethnicity or the background of the uh, assailants or perpetrators, the downplaying the refugee uh, link or, or asylum seeker link. Then you have these ultra PC people on Twitter tweeting out stuff like regarding people who are speaking out about these attacks. You know, these people don't care about women. This is just a chance to bash Muslims or whatever. So what do you think it's going to do when you just stick your head in the sand and don't address these all too real problems, such as the fact that there may be a clash of cultures going on here? And that if you take someone who comes from a culture or a religious culture, however you want to put it, that doesn't necessarily treat women very well and may have an even worse opinion of Western women. I forget the exact number. I thought I read something like a million immigrants um, came into Germany. Oh, okay, I'm looking at now. This is The Guardian. German authorities expect up to 1.5 million asylum seekers to arrive in Germany this year. And this was already dated uh, 2015. This is from back in October. Around 550,000 immigrants came to Germany in 2014. And uh, I'm not anti-immigrant, and I try to be very mindful of this stuff. And this is another thing I talked about with C-Web. I said, you know, I'm very well aware of how I ended up being here in America. You know, I'm predominantly Italian. Uh, well, both my grandfathers were pure Italian. My grandmother was pure Irish. And I think that my other grandmother was like English and French or something like that. But um, I know that Irish and Italian immigrants, when they first came to America, weren't treated very well uh and of course before even you know the ellis island era immigrants you know when my grandparents uh, great-grandparents came over and got here you know before that before the colonists this country belonged to in to indigenous peoples <laughs> and uh so you know i try to approach the topic of immigration very humbly you know realizing that you know uh, at least america here it's a melting pot and I'm a mutt, like I was explaining. I'm a, a mixture of different ethnicities. Someone took a chance on my immigrant ancestors. But I also think, and this goes back to the PC thing, that you have to be smart about it. You can't be so politically correct that you just fling the door open, figuratively speaking, and have this open door policy. And I would hope that already. You know, there might be some kind of screening process for whatever that's worth. But you've got to be very aware of who you're letting into your country, what type of culture they're coming from. And, uh, and now the MRAs are probably going to hate me. But, uh, you know, young men in general can be dangerous. Letting in a crapload of testosterone-driven single young guys from a culture that has backwards ideas about women, eh, 
probably not the best idea. You know what I mean? So it's like I'm not against immigration across the board by any stretch of the imagination. But you may want to be smart about how you do it. Letting in over a million people in a short period of time just sounds batshit insane to me. And not being more careful about letting in young men, like I said, from areas that might hold very different ideas about how to treat women, etc., that might really be in conflict with kind of modern enlightenment values. It's, I don't know, it's crazy. But I think I read a little bit about how this wasn't limited to Cologne and that there were issues in other parts of Germany as well as other parts of Europe. Uh, and, and that CNN article spoke a little bit about how there were, there were similar attacks or assaults on New Year's Eve in Hamburg. Uh, Let's see. Frankfurt, also on New Year's Eve, uh, seven sexual assault cases from men who had quote-unquote Arab accents. Berlin, Stuttgart, Dusseldorf, similar issues. Switzerland, um, there were cases of robbery and sexual assault. Uh, Helsinki, Finland, Incidents of sexual harassment committed by supposed refugees or asylum seekers, uh, also on New Year's Eve. Similar attacks in Berlin. Uh, Supposedly, I think some of the people involved were from a refugee camp. Austria, sexual assaults uh, on New Year's Eve as well, leading to at least three arrests. Sweden, there were at least nine victims. The assailants uh, appeared to be foreign, could speak neither English nor Swedish. And I'd also like to give a thanks to Sargon of Akkad. He did a couple of great videos on this subject, and he quoted a bunch of uh, reputable news sources too. And I took some screenshots. I'm not sure if they'll make it into the YouTube version or not. And... Sargon, while researching his episodes on the New Year's Eve attacks, had discovered something really disturbing. And he did post uh, screenshots of of the news articles. Uh, But he discovered this disturbing concept known as Taharush uh, that's found in certain uh, Islamic cultures and it's spelled T-A-H-A-R-R-U-S-H. And I think roughly translated uh, from Arabic, it means something like collective harassment. And it's this practice where a crowd of men will gather around a woman and basically, you know, accost her, sexually assault her. And in fairness, you know, I don't know how common of a practice this is in certain Islamic cultures, and I'm not even sure if it's related directly to Islam or what the deal is. I don't know if this is something that, and once again, like I said, kind of at the top of the show, the line between culture and religion can often get pretty blurry. So if your regressive ideas about how women should be treated, you know, your kind of backwards, barbaric ideas about how women should be treated come from your culture, but your culture borrows certain 
ideas about how women should be treated from its predominant religion, that it's hard to separate religion from culture. But this Taharush thing, I don't know how widely accepted it is, if it's something that society in general in those areas frowns upon, but young men practice it anyway, like maybe it's some kind of fringe criminal thing. I, I honestly do not know. But unfortunately, sadly, it is a real practice. And one of the prime examples of this was the treatment of Laura Logan, a um, female news reporter, obviously first name Laura, who was the victim of this practice a, a few years back when she was covering the Arab Spring in Egypt, uh, specifically in Cairo, in, Ta in uh, Tahir Square. Very disturbing stuff. I mean, she was basically... You could find video footage or photos of her caught in this swarm of men and is it literally looks like an ocean of men and you can see the fear on her face and as graphic as it is she am loosely paraphrasing her but she pretty much says they raped her with their hands that just one after another hands all over her body hands inside her um she still has to undergo surgeries for medical conditions that are a direct result of the assault. Uh, not that long ago, supposedly she had an issue with internal bleeding, so she's still struggling with the physical trauma because they they had brutalized her so badly while sexually assaulting her. So now even officials are saying that it looks like this Taharush practice has made its way with migrants into... Western Europe. And that's basically what we saw on New Year's Eve. Now, I just want to say, like, once again, that, yeah, there's a lot of, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of good, serious, grown up feminists out there. But if you're one of these feminists that's focusing on Anita Sarkeesian and uh, microaggressions and safe spaces or whatever, you know, who knows? Maybe things like safe spaces might have some practical applications. I know uh, Anonymous Steve, who uh, a dad from the UK that I once interviewed, who's also, um, I'm trying to think if he's a psychologist or a therapist, but I spoke dismissively about this type of thing, microaggression, safe spaces. And I think he took issue with how easily I dismiss some of these things. So who knows, maybe in certain cases, something like a safe space or something like that might have certain legitimate applications for certain individuals. But what I'm getting at is, if you're one of these feminists who's kind of focusing on that type of stuff, on, on the kind of the super PC stuff, this kind of Orwellian newspeak stuff, it's like, I plead with you Look at this stuff. Look how real-life violence and barbarism is being inflicted on real women. It's like, speak up against this crap. I mean, I know people can walk and chew gum at the same time. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, if you want to... I mean, if you think this thing's about Western culture that convey or perpetuate an unhealthy attitude towards women... You don't have to throw all of that out. You can still work on that too. But don't put your head in the sand when 
these horrible, horrific things are going on to real-life women, women who are being brutalized, sexually assaulted, raped. You know, I, I plead with you. I beg you, you know, address this stuff. Don't sweep it under the rug. Get mad about it. Try to change it. You know, do something. Don't just ignore it and say people who are bringing it up hate Muslims or something. I mean, really fight for women. You know, fight for speaking out against this stuff. But anyway, enough uh, proselytizing there. But actually, here's a little bit of Sargon of Akkad. Uh, if you're not familiar, very popular uh, YouTuber actually speaking about this. Really? Are you actually going to say it's everyone else's fault but yours that you don't have the balls to speak up in defense of victims who were assaulted by gangs participating in a rape culture? So these were the least stupid of feminist reactions. There were, of course, feminists who absolutely shat the bed and had no idea what they were fucking talking about. You had feminists denouncing German-born men after these sex attacks. I hate to break it to you, but German-born men also harass and rape. Okay, that's great, but were they harassing and raping in the gangs on New Year's Eve at Cologne? Rape culture in Germany is not an imported phenomenon. Okay, well, how many of these rape gangs in Cologne were made up of German men? The answer, of course, was zero. Just Let's just disregard nationality and culture altogether. We should look to the gender of the Cologne attackers, not their race. Well, I, mean, I, I don't think anyone was actually talking about race. But how exactly is that any better? I mean, we weren't blaming all Arabs based on the fact that they are Arabs. But now you want to blame all men based on the fact that they are men. Do you not see that it is the same bigotry dressed up in different clothing? I remember when I first listened to that clip, thinking that Sargon had touched on something I was thinking about. And that's this weird argument that I think I even heard J.R. Jackson from the Young Turks say something along these lines that, you know, Germany had a rape problem before this or that rapes occurred in Germany, you know, prior to this. And of course, unfortunately, every society um, has a certain level of awful, heinous crimes, you know murder, rape. Unfortunately, it seems uh, crime is this inescapable aspect of human nature or the human condition. I imagine as long as there's human beings around, there will be crime around. So, of course, there were individual rapes here and there in Germany and um, every other culture or civilization. But I remember thinking to myself, okay, but these were individual rapes, um, still heinous, still atrocious. The people who committed those acts, acts, in my opinion, should be locked up for life or worse. But we weren't seeing this phenomenon of people organizing giant rape gangs and um, swarming on women like piranha. And this is a cultural thing. You know what I mean? So pointing to the fact that even before this, there were always, you know, there was always a rape here and there. How does that help us deal with this cultural idea that's all right for men 
to gather into large groups and terrorize and assault women. I mean, like I said about being able to walk and chew gum earlier, we can be disgusted and outraged about singular cases of rape that happen by, you know, deviant individuals and still realize that there's this problematic cultural thing going on where you have large gangs of immigrants ganging up on women. So I have, I mean, it baffles me. I have no idea what that, where that's supposed to take the conversation, pointing to the fact that, well, rape existed before this, you know, um, or the odd rape here and there took place before this. What were we supposed to say? Oh, sorry, guys. <laughs> I guess we were being racist. Uh, keep that door open. Let's let another million in. And uh, we'll never address the cultural differences. We'll just let these massive rape gangs keep doing their thing. And if we can prosecute one of them here and there, okay. But we wouldn't want to hurt anyone's delicate feelings by bringing up that there may be a cultural aspect to all this. And I spoke earlier how different sources have different numbers. So there was somewhere in between 80-something to 120-something reported cases of assault, uh, one or two reported rapes, at least. I know there is a fear that since eyewitness identification might play a role, a lot of these guys might go free because it might be difficult for the victims to identify these guys since, I mean, it was probably pretty hectic and there were so many of them. But out of the roughly like 30 or whatever guys that were rounded up, See, according to Anna Kasparian, uh, I'll give her this. She at least, uh, you know, she tried to be honest uh, with the facts, even though, in my opinion, the Young Turks were definitely way too overly politically correct in their analysis of this story. Anna was at least trying to inject some facts into, into uh, their coverage. And, and she had mentioned 21 of the suspects rounded up were asylum seekers. Then I think... Uh, is the mayor of Cologne, I believe, who warned against trying to draw a link between Syrian refugees and the New Year's Eve rapes or, or uh, assaults. But then it turned out that many of the suspects themselves identified themselves as uh, refugees or asylum seekers. Um, this other source has 31 suspects identified as asylum seekers. And then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, many of the stolen phones led back to people with um, refugee or uh, asylum seeker status. There were stories about, I think, from police officers of people ripping up their um, residency certificates or what, whatever their identification was and kind of taunting the police and saying, I'll just go back tomorrow and, uh, you know, return and get a new one or whatever. I think meaning, you know, if you tried to punish them by taking their documentation away, they could either go back to their home country and try to get in again, or they could just remain in their host country and just get new documentation or whatever. I'm just looking at some of my figures. I'm not sure if this is still dealing with Cologne, or if this is one of the the other New Year's Eve incidents in another part of uh, Germany, but 15 suspects in, in one case, uh, 14 from Syria, one from Afghanistan. Okay, I see that 
number 15 suspects, uh, 14 Syrian, one Afghanistan. That's still referring to the Cologne case. But that just has to do with the experience of one particular squad. And this is from the Telegraph UK by Justin Hugler. Justin Hugler in Cologne. Uh, Some of those involved in a series of sexual assaults against women in the German city of Cologne on New Year's Eve claimed to be Syrian refugees, according to a leaked police report. The outbreak of violence was also far more serious than previously thought, and at one point senior police officers feared, in quotes, there could have been fatalities. Two publications have released what they claim is an internal report by a senior officer who was at the scene. If confirmed, the report could have far-reaching consequences for Angela for Angela Merkel's government as it tries to deal with the aftermath of the assaults. One of the of the suspects is quoted as saying, "I am Syrian. You have to treat me kindly." Mrs. Merkel invited me. Oh, it says another. Here's what I was just talking about. Another guy said, uh, "Another tore up his residence permit before the eyes of police and told them you can't do anything to me. I can get a new one tomorrow." The Express newspaper quoted an unnamed police officer who said his squad had detained several people who had, in quotes, only been in Germany for a few weeks. Of these people, 14 were from Syria and one was from Afghanistan. That's the truth, although it hurts, he said. Okay, now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I was going to talk about other cases of um, what appears to be a link between... Muslim migrants or immigrants and disturbing cases of um, sexual assault. And once again, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't think this is a racial thing. I don't want to seem like I'm piling on a certain ethnicity or trying to paint Muslims with a broad brush, but these are real incidents that are happening. And uh, being politically correct and sticking our heads in the sand isn't going to help the situation. And this is a case that I had known about for a long time, but I'm just speaking about it now because, like I said earlier, it it sounded so horrendous, so extraordinary that part of me thought, you know, this has to be some kind of weird right-wing propaganda or this has to be exaggerated or this has to be the product of some tabloid rag or something. But it's unfortunately very real. And it's the case of... The sexual abuse of roughly 1,400, 1,400 uh, girls in Rotherham, England, that took place over a span of 16 years, beginning in the uh, late 1990s, I believe. And this big network of men abusing the girls, the the men were Pakistani, and this was going on in uh, the Pakistani community. And actually, I'll play uh, a clip or two. Okay, and here's a clip from a very popular BBC show entitled The Big Questions. There's my chihuahua snoring in the background. And this actually has to do with, uh, I'm horrible with uh, place names. Is it Rochdale or something like that? This is different than the Rotherham uh, case. I hope I'm not butchering that too. Uh, My English friends will let me know. Uh, But it's a similar case where we had this kind of network of people 
raping, sexually abusing young girls. And in fairness, if you notice that the, I think, police official that they mentioned by name who's trying to clean this up also sounds like he's um, of immigrant stock. Who knows? Might even also be Pakistani. And the guy who very honestly admits that he thinks there may be a racial element to the way maybe these Pakistani men view white girls as being lesser. Uh, this guy, that guy too is, is, is Pakistani. So I'm not trying to paint people with a broad brush, but we have to be honest about the facts now. So here's the clip. Well, the police in Rochdale knew that Asian men had been grooming vulnerable young girls for sex since 2008 when a 15-year-old victim told them what had happened to her. But it took until May 2011 when Nazir Afzal was appointed chief crime prosecutor for the Northwest before the law did anything about it. Uh, Mr. Afzal says imported cultural baggage played a role in this terrible crime. Uh, the convicted men all thought that women are lesser beings. Well, should the Pakistani community put its own house in order? It's a question that has been de debated one way or another uh, this week, and it's a question a lot of people are very uncomfortable with, Mohammed Shafiq. You think it's a fair question? Yes, I think it is. Uh, let's, let's look at the facts. The facts are that out of 77 recent convictions, 67 are Pakistani men. 80% of uh, sexual of, uh, offenders in terms of grooming, online grooming, are white. So we've got to put it in the context it is. Um, and in the week where we saw uh, nine people be convicted, we also saw eight people convicted in Edinburgh of child abuse, including rape of eight people. So why is this having to do with the Pakistani um, community? I, I think as a community, we've got to reflect on why is it that there are people amongst us who think that white girls are worthless, who think they can use and abuse them in this abhorrent sort of way, and we've got to confront it. And I, I have to say to you, Nikki, Just white girls? I, I, I actually think that it's, it, it is a race issue. Actually, here's a news clip that has to do with uh, the Rotherham uh, scandal, for lack of a better term of what it calls the appalling abuse of at least 1,400 children over a period of 16 years, from 1997 to 2013. It details children being raped, trafficked, beaten and sometimes doused in petrol. The inquiry says almost all the perpetrators were of Pakistani heritage. Professor Alexis Jay, a former chief inspector of social work in Scotland, said there were blatant failures by both the police and the council to stop the abuse. And she said clear evidence outlined in three separate reports was disbelieved, suppressed or ignored. Well, just in the last few minutes, the leader of Rotherham Council for the last decade, Roger Stone, said he is taking responsibility for what had happened and had resigned from his post. Well, the report's author, Professor Jay, gave graphic details of what she said the victims had endured. It is hard to describe the appalling nature of the abuse the child victims suffered. They were raped by multiple perpetrators. They were trafficked to other towns and cities in the north of England. They were abducted, beaten and intimidated. There were examples of children being doused with petrol and threatened with being set alight. They were threatened with guns, made to witness brutally violent rapes and threatened they would be the next if they told anyone. Girls as young as 11 were raped by large numbers of male perpetrators. The detail of this information 
and the 15 pen pictures of exploited children, which we include in Chapter 5 of the report, were all taken from official records, files and minutes. And we could have described many other children whose experiences were just as awful. Professor Alexis Jay, and she went on to say that much more still needs to be done to help the girls and boys who've been abused. Okay, here's a clip of a kind of inquiry into the kind of inept way that the police handled or didn't handle the situation. And uh, what's going on is because I, I don't think I'll include the video just for copyright reasons is they're basically grilling this high up, this high ranking police officer, a constable. Paragraph 5.3 of the report says that in 2008, an 11-year-old girl came to the attention of the police after she disclosed that she and another child had been sexually abused by a group of adult males. Just a few weeks later, she was found in a derelict house with another child and a number of adult males. Yet she, she, she was arrested, 11 years of age, she was arrested for being drunk and disorderly, and none of the males were arrested. Have you... Has your force identified the police officers involved in that and found out what went on? Um, I, I, I don't know. Okay. Don't know. All right. In paragraph 5.21... will you find out? We will. Apologies, yes. And come and tell us next week. We I will have, have a don't know on these issues. Correct. Right. I, I will have an answer okay. to that question next week. Paragraph 5.21 shows how a police officer dismissed the case of a 12-year-old girl who'd been having sex with up to five Asian males because he said she had been, quote, 100% consensual in every incident. 12 years of age? I think that's just... I think that's unbelievable, to be honest. Have you, has, have you identified who that officer was and found out what happened there? Can I, well, can I just make one thing clear? That um, I've, I've said today that we must have an independent investigation team to come back at this. I have also personally spoken I, to the director of investigation. If a report, at the ICC. sorry, Mr. Austin, could the Chief Constable just finish? Please finish. I, I've also personally spoken to the director of investigations at the IPCC, and um, uh, to, in order to involve them in this as well. Well, if a report, if people I was responsible for managing, if a report landed on my desk, well over a week ago now saying that people I was responsible for had behaved like that, I'd want to know pretty quickly what on earth had happened. In paragraph 5.9, it says that fathers had tracked down their daughters and tried to remove them from houses where they were being abused, only to find themselves arrested when police were called to the scene. Do you know what happened in that case? Chair, I don't seek to defend any of this, and that I've asked for an. Uh, I'm in the process of setting up an independent investigation because the. Blah blah blah. Excuses, excuses. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but that's really disturbing. Um, the story about an 11-year-old girl being arrested and not the men, and then the stories about fathers trying to track their daughters down only to be arrested themselves instead of the people who were abusing their kids. And this is an article from the BBC. Most of it is just describing or quoting um, things you already heard in those clips I played. 
But this interesting part of the article entitled Racism Fear, the report found several staff described their nervousness about identifying the ethnic origins of perpetrators for fear of being thought as racist. Other remembered clear direction from their managers not to do so. And when it's talking about staff, I think it's talking about the, the police. Um, let's see. Failures by those charged with protecting children happened despite three reports between 2002 and 2006, which both the council and police were aware of, and which, in quotes, could not have been clearer in the description of the situation in Rotherham. A victim of abuse in Rotherham who has been called Isabel to protect her identity told BBC Panorama, I was a child and they should have stepped in. No matter what's done now, it's not going to change that. It, it was too late. It should have been stopped and prevented. And as I was saying, and as um, that big questions clip was addressing, Rotherham isn't the only incident in England. Rochdale, if, <laughs> if I'm not butchering it, um, that was another example. And there was also a Derby sex gang uh, ring or, or, or scandal of some type. And the common thread that that the perpetrators in all these incidents were members of Muslim immigrant communities. And uh, Sargon of Akkad did an interesting thing where he overlaid two maps, a map of these incidents in the UK and a map of locations of rape crisis centers. And they almost aligned perfectly. But I think one person in the comment section said, well, those are also all heavily populated areas, and that could be why there's more rape crisis centers in those areas. Um, so a dose of healthy skepticism is always welcome, I suppose. And I promised I was going to talk about Sweden and a kind of shocking rise in the amount of uh, rapes there. Uh, one thing um, that seems to be for sure is that Sweden is now considered basically the rape capital of the European world. And outside of Europe, um, it's second only to a certain part of Africa in, in the uh, number of rapes. But here's a little article from the Daily Caller. Uh, take it with a grain of salt. This is um, from October 2015, so not that long ago. And it's in the opinion section. Sweden opened its doors to Muslim immigration. Today, it's the rape capital of the West. Japan didn't. And this is by James Zumwalt. As Europe confronts the social and financial realities of its largesse in opening its doors to millions of Muslim immigrants, it is time the tale of two countries is told. The tale is an important one as the two countries involved have taken completely different approaches to Muslim immigration and the preservation of their own culture. As such, both provide examples of the proverbial canary in the coal mine on this matter. Sweden began opening its doors to Muslim immigrants in the 1970s. Today it pays a high price for having done so. The group suffering the severest consequences of such an open-door policy has been Swedish women. 
As Muslim men immigrated to Sweden, they brought with them an Islamic culture sanctioning rape. It is a culture bad enough inherently in the treatment of its own women. Under Sharia, Muslim women serve little more purpose beyond catering to their husbands' sexual demands. A non-submissive wife runs the risk of being raped by her husband. But under Sharia, this rape culture also impacts upon Swedish women as they are infidels and as such are, according to Allah's teaching, sanctioned targets for rape by Muslim men. So, yeah, definitely an opinion piece. And uh, I, I think the treatment of women is something that varies from one Islamic culture to another, relatively speaking. So this guy's kind of take is a little strong for me, but... Where I think he's right is that, once again, you have to be careful with these open-door policies, and you have to be careful about choosing who you let into your country and how many people you let in at once. And is, is it too much for any type of healthy assimilation to take place? That goes into compare uh, Sweden's approach with uh, that of Japan. It says, the reason for the difference is simple. Japan, unlike Sweden has been much more circumspect about all immigration in an effort to preserve its own culture. As Dr. Mordecai Kedar, I think it is, an Israeli military intelligence officer, observed in his May 20th, 2013 article, Japan, the land without Muslims, although the country has a population of 127 million, there are only 10,000 resident Muslims. Thus, Muslims in Japan register less than one hundredth of a percent of the population, while those in European countries are growing into sizable minorities. While Japan does not openly single out Muslim immigration as a source of concern, Kadar explained, nonetheless, Japan remains concerned about Islamic influence. There are three reasons giving rise to this. That says, um, first, the Japanese tend to lump all Muslims together as fundamentalists who are unwilling to give up their traditional point of view and adopt uh, modern ways of thinking and behavior in Japan. Islam is perceived Islam is perceived as a strange religion that any intelligent person should avoid. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that I don't know if that's how all Japan sees it, but uh, and although I think there's probably plenty of intelligent Muslims out there, uh, it's kind of how I see it in a sense too. Um, if you're really intelligent, why are you embracing any kind of uh, man-made religion? Unless you have this really figurative, airy fairy approach to it, and then in that sense, is it even? a religion anymore, or just the shell of a religion. Um, but anyway, uh, it goes on to the second reason. Most Japanese have no religion, but behaviors connected with the Shinto religion, along with elements of Buddhism, are integrated into national customs. In Japan, religion is connected to the nationalist concept, and prejudice exists towards foreigners, whether they are Chinese, Korean, Malaysian or Indonesian, and Westerners don't escape this phenomenon either. There are those who call this a developed sense of nationalism, and there are those who call this racism. It seems that neither of these is wrong. And that gives a third reason. The Japanese dismiss the concept of monotheism and faith in an abstract god because their world concept is apparently connected to the material, not to faith and emotions. It seems that they group Judaism together with Islam. Christianity exists in Japan and is not regarded negatively, apparently because the image of Jesus perceived in Japan is like the images of Buddha and Shinto. Well, that's interesting. But I'm getting tired, and I've been drinking rum and coke this whole time. I don't know if I've been slurring. 
So I guess I'll just end by saying in conclusion that even if it makes us feel like racists or bigots for pointing it out, uh, these problems are real, as ugly as they are. These New Year's Eve attacks, not just in Cologne, but all throughout uh, Germany and uh, in Helsinki as well, and um, similar type of problems that we see in Sweden, these immigrant rape gangs or rape networks that have plagued England. Uh, these are all very, very real as well. So these things are real and they have to be dealt with. I think being ultra politically correct isn't going to get us anywhere except the only thing it's going to achieve is ignoring the problem, which usually just causes a problem to grow. But like I said at the very beginning, I don't think it's a race thing. Yeah, you guys know my take on race. I believe uh, race is a somewhat problematic term, both, I think, ethically and scientifically. I think uh, we're one species, Homo sapiens sapiens, you know. I don't think that Arab or Pakistani or Egyptian men are subhuman monsters uh, born with some kind of rape gene or something like that, you know what I mean? Um, I think this really is a cultural thing. We tend to want to believe that all cultures are equal. Uh, this kind of it's a small world Disney approach that uh, all cultures are wonderful and beautiful. And uh, once again, you guys know me. Um, this You can name any religion or any culture and I can probably find things that I like about it. But that doesn't mean that, that there aren't disturbing elements too but some of these islamic cultures you know but even though we're all human beings that doesn't mean that our cultures are always going to be compatible or that there aren't some really key differences and if you let in a big influx of people from a culture where uh, that has a different attitude towards women you know and you put them into as i said earlier a Western culture that has enlightenment value values and where women are more free and where the, you know, there's different ideas about modesty and whatnot. I mean, to some degree, it might be a recipe for disaster. And once again, I'm not saying that you stop all immigration. You know, I mean, I'm just saying that you got to be smart about it. You can't just throw open the gates and have this pie-in-the-sky idea that aren't we so nice for laying everyone in and, oh, what could go wrong? Everyone's lovely and it's just going to turn out to be all puppy dogs and rainbows. And not all Pakistani men, not all Syrian men are uh, rapists and behave like animals around uh, European women or whatever. You know, of course, not. I'm sure there's members of those communities that, like us, are shaking their heads and going, what the, you know, I mean, what the hell are these men doing? You know, and just having trouble wrapping their head around it. But that doesn't eliminate the cultural aspect. I mean, if there wasn't a cultural aspect, you wouldn't see giant groups of men, and not lone deviant individuals here and there you know, committing a sexual assault, but organized giant groups of men doing this stuff, targeting women. You know, if it wasn't a cultural thing, you wouldn't see these similar cases popping up throughout the UK. Um, 
where once again, not a lone deviant here and there, but net networks, gangs, you know, just like I think an individual has to have some street smarts, I think countries have to have street smarts too. And, you know, try to be savvy when they make decisions about who they're going to let into their country, you know, about who they're going to open their gates to, how many immigrants are you going to take in at once? What are the cultural attitudes of the people you're bringing in? Are you letting in too many at once for your culture to be able to absorb and for these newcomers to be able to assimilate successfully? And there's also, I think, a difference between refugees and, say, like work migrants. Because I think um, a certain amount of the people involved in the New Year's Eve attacks may have been men who were in Germany, not because they were refugees from a war or a conflict or anything like that. They were there for work. So that's another thing you have to consider. I mean, are you laying these people in for humanitarian reasons? Uh, or, or are you laying them in because you need cheap labor? And what might the cost of that be in, in the long run, you know, both culturally and in regard to the safety of your citizens? And even in the case of refugees, I, I think is maybe as cold as it sounds you don't want to just fling the door doors open to everyone hopefully there's some kind of vetting process for what it's worth again for even refugees you know i mean most likely uh you know a mother and her little children probably aren't gonna be a problem um grandpa's probably not gonna be a problem young men with uh, a lot of testosterone and nothing to lose and backwards ideas about women yeah that might be a problem but anyway i've rambled on enough i think i'm gonna call it quits there i'm over two hours right now almost two and a half hours this is going to be a hell of an editing task uh we'll see how it shapes up and um hopefully i end up with something you guys actually enjoy watching or listening to all right so until next week thanks